Thank you, Marion. Just raising this, we can't have discrimination against tall people, can we? Um, I feel like a lion in the den of Daniels here today. I really do. It's, it's wonderful to be here uh, sharing God's word with you. And uh, we're continuing in the series that our ministers have been preaching to us on, the Alive Again series about the activity of the risen Christ in the book of Acts. And today we're looking at uh, part of Acts 10. Just some background first. Uh, Kevin, have we got that slide? Thank you. Just some background first. Uh, the story in uh, Acts 10 and 11 of the conversion of the Gentiles at Caesarea is the longest narrative in the book of Acts, 66 verses. The angelic visitation given to Cornelius, the Roman centurion, is told four times. You remember the story of the uh, great uh, sheet that came down with all the different kinds of animals in it? And Peter is told, don't call any unclean. Uh, God is trying to get through to him about something. Peter's vision, that vision actually occurs three times. And it's recounted twice uh, in Acts. And then he alludes to it again later in Acts 15 at the Council of Jerusalem, uh, which was uh, one of the great historic uh, turning points in Christian mission. And it's deliberately emphasised by Luke in Acts. Um, as I thought about this, I'm reminded of a line in a play that I knew of. It's called The Trial of Jesus. And it was written by John Macefield, uh, who was a former poet laureate. And in the play, he has Pilate's wife uh, call the officer superintending Jesus' crucifixion to come and tell her how the prisoner died. And he does this and she says, do you think he's dead? And the centurion answers, no, lady, I don't. Then where is he? She asks. And the soldier replies, he's loose in the world, lady, where neither Roman nor Jew can stop his truth. In this conversion story in Acts 10 and its sequel in Acts 11, we see something of the sort of thing that happens when Jesus gets loose in the world. Acts 10, in Acts 10, the risen Jesus, loose in the world, sends his angel to Cornelius and speaks powerfully in a vision to Peter. I'll deal with Acts 10 in three parts, and the first part very briefly. Firstly, God's impartial intervention in those early verses. There isn't time here to dwell on the details of these remarkable interventions of God in sending an angel messenger to Cornelius and the stunning vision given to Peter three times. Amusingly, perhaps, more time is spent on getting through to Peter than getting through to Cornelius. But a few general things should be noted. Early in Scripture, God speaks to Israel's great patriarch Abraham, announcing not only would his own descendants become a great nation, but also that all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Genesis 12. And right through the Old Testament, we repeatedly read of God's desire 
to bring his saving love to the nations of the world through Israel. The chosen people were to be that channel through which, as we see, for example, in Isaiah 2, 1 to 5, all nations, and the Hebrew word is goyim, the Gentiles, will stream to hear the word of the Lord going out from Jerusalem. Following the resurrection, and even before the Cornelius incident, the Lord has already begun using believing Israelites to get the message of Jesus to Gentiles. So earlier in Acts, we read that some Samaritans had already been converted to Christ. That's early in Acts 8. And then an Ethiopian official has responded with joy when Philip the Evangelist explained Isaiah 53 to him. That's in the latter part of Acts 8. And Paul, the future apostle to the Gentiles, had already turned to Christ and had been given his missionary commission in Acts 9. Now another big public step is taken as the Lord intervenes to have Peter enter a Gentile home in Caesarea and to preach Christ to a Roman centurion and a gathering of his family and friends. And so on to the next part, uh, verses 23 to 43 and God's impartial salvation. When Cornelius obeys the angel and Peter obeys the triple vision, Peter puts aside his cultural conditioning and comes with six other Jewish Christians. And that's an important factor here. Into this noble Gentile's home, Peter finds a large audience of Gentiles waiting for him, whom he realises... Uh, that God has assembled. Later in Acts 11.14, we learn that Cornelius had actually been told by the angel that Peter's message would lead to his salvation and that of his whole household. They are ready. They are there. They are keen to listen. God has got their attention. Peter sees God has set this up. And he speaks the key words of this whole story in Acts 10, 34 to 35. He says, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. It has hit Peter now that nationality, ethnicity, and all kinds of categorizations of people which are important to them, are now being exposed as irrelevant to God. Or as the writer to the Hebrews would say, Jesus' new covenant is before Peter's eyes, making the old one obsolete. Peter goes on in Acts 10.36 to speak of God sending the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. And that description of Jesus is directly related in context to what he's just said about God's impartiality. For when he calls Jesus Lord of all, the Greek text has panton kurios, 
the same Greek word for Yahweh, kurios, which uh, Cornelius would have often read in his own copy of the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. Peter uses it here. And he emphasizes that this great Lord is for all, Jew and Gentile. There are no second-class citizens under this mighty risen Lord. Peter then rounds off his account of the gospel. And remember, Luke is just giving a summary here. And he says, all the prophets testify about him, that is Jesus, that everyone, panta, all, a form of the great, uh, same basic Greek word, who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Peter is saying that this forgiveness of sins which comes with uh, believing in Jesus is impartially intended by a loving Lord. It is as though Peter himself is seeing his own new uh, his own Old Testament scriptures more clearly than ever before. Well, at a personal level for us, uh, we probably don't have a lot of problem with the whole Jew-Gentile issue. That's not exactly what we're faced with. However, the gospel principles of God's love for all and Jesus' lordship of all are very relevant to us. Our culture implicitly grades and evaluates people in a host of damaging ways. <clears throat> and th those ways are quite irrelevant to God, but they can wreck our churches even. Think of wealth, position, formal education, even fashion. Fashion is very important to some people. I still remember, I carry the wounds to this day, when my son in his early 20s, we were out at some social function and he arrived late. I was standing up the back and he sidled up to me surreptitiously and he said, Dad, what are you wearing? <laughs> Clearly, I'd committed a fashion sin. And it was an embarrassment to him. <clears throat> Sometimes, even across whole nations and cultures, quite evil criteria can be used to downgrade some people and elevate others. I was in India with a friend some years ago, doing some teaching and preaching in a college and some local churches. You don't have to go to India to find this kind of stuff, but this is a good illustration. I remember being there and recall speaking one Sunday on the New Covenant in uh, Jeremiah 31. And I remember reading out the words, They will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. And while I was saying it, this strange, low rumble of approval, joy and amen went through that large congregation. I realised they were all Dalits, the untouchable class in India's Hindu caste system. It's outlawed in the constitution but widely practised. But now these people 
had first-class seats in the kingdom of God. God's impartiality meant the world to them. Let's look at the third section here. God's impartial gift of the Spirit. The coming of the Holy Spirit on these new Gentile believers in Caesarea is very significant. We read these words in Acts 10, 44 to 46. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who'd come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. <clears throat> the Holy Spirit, now given to Gentiles, was God's stamp of genuineness upon these people from the wrong side of an ethnic and cultural divide. In Acts 11, when Peter reports back to the Jewish Christians and leaders in Jerusalem about this, and he's criticised by them for fraternising with Gentiles, he must have been itching to say to them, oh, it's worse than that. It's much worse than that. But he just recounts what the Lord did in speaking to him and to Cornelius. And then he says, and then the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us at the beginning. So if God gave them the same gift he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? <clears throat> I have this theory that somebody somewhere will probably produce a paraphrase of those words uh, sometime which will read, God did it, don't blame me. <laughs> and wonderfully, the very last words in this story come in Acts 11 verse 18, which say, when they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, So then, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Beautiful, isn't it? Well, to conclude, you know, problems about God's gracious impartiality would arise repeatedly in the early church. It's actually crucial to understanding some of Paul's key letters, such as Romans and Galatians. God keeps sweeping both Jews and Gentiles, rich and poor, male and female, slave and free, into his new covenant kingdom, gifting them too for his service. And they keep having to learn to get on together. But here's the rub. We too, if we're to love one another and see others helped by the love of God through us, we must learn more and more to accept those whom God accepts. That doesn't mean we just agree with any old behaviour or muddled theology. The apostles didn't do that and they often called out both because the God of love is also the Holy One of Israel and the God of all truth. But accepting whom God accepts, I have to tell you, 
I'm not good at that. How about you? Had your moments? May God, who has no favourites, but loves each one, help us all. Amen.